This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Judy was boring. Hello. Then, Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now, Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Ladies and gentlemen, uh... can I please have your attention? Daniel Jiggins! Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Come on by thedispatch.com and check out our wares. Maybe become um, a uh, paid member of the Dispatch community. We'd love to have you. Um, comment section is for, for members only, and the uh, I'll just say that the comment sections are often lit with intense political debate, and you can be part of all that if you sign up. So with all that said, uh, we are welcoming back a friend, a colleague uh, for his second time on this August podcast, uh, Scott Winship. He's the Director of Poverty Studies at AEI and a resident scholar at AEI, and he's down the hall from me at AEI. Um, and we were going to have his partner in crime from the hated Brookings Institution, um, which, you know, as an AEI guy, I must say that technically Winship as a collaborator with someone from Brookings is, is, is deeply problematic. But, um, uh, but uh, uh, Richard Reeves, not the presidential historian and biographer, but the um, senior fellow from Brookings. Uh, he got uh, waylaid. We're hoping he can join us in progress. Um, but for now, it's just me and Scott. And the reason I wanted to have Scott on, I invited him because uh, he's come out with a, he and, and Reeves have come out with a major new paper called Long Shadows, The Black-White Gap in Multi-Generational Poverty that's making a big splash and is very interesting. And it's more of a concrete thing than a lot of the sort of racial argy-bargy that we are subjected to on cable TV and um, uh, Twitter. And so I thought it would be worth doing a deep dive on it. So, Scott Winship, welcome back. Great to have you. Thank you, Jonah. Great to be here, always. All right. So let's just, like, let's imagine you, let's say I'm... um, um, I know this is a stretch from your own personal experience, but let's say I'm like Mike Lee, Senator Mike Lee, right? Or who you used to work for, um, or a president of the United States. And you are my, you know, one of my senior policy aides brief me, give me the top line. What do I need to know in case reporters are going to ask me about this thing? What are your, what are the top line findings, um, of this study? Sure. So I guess I'd start out by saying, you know, I, I, I think it's been well known. It's kind of well known 
generally that uh, there's a lot of inequality between African-Americans and whites in terms of a range of outcomes. Um, and in particular, when people look at economic mobility, intergenerational mobility, um, whether you're able to kind of transcend uh, your starting point, um, it's fairly well known that there are big differences there too between between blacks and whites um, in terms of being able to make it out of the bottom if you start there, um, in terms of starting in the middle and then falling uh, below middle class. Uh, but what hadn't been looked at, surprisingly, um, was whether uh, there were black-white differences in three-generation poverty. Um, and so what Richard and I and, uh, and our co-authors um, at Brookings and AEI uh, did was to go back to um, grandparents um, and uh, observed around 1970. Uh, and then we looked at their incomes. We looked at the incomes of, of their kids. Uh, and then we looked at the incomes of the grandkids. And essentially what we found is that among uh, African-Americans in their 30s today, uh, about 21% of them uh, are in their third generation of being in the bottom fifth of income. Um, so roughly one in five. Uh, whereas if you look at the same figure for whites, it's one in 100. Um, so 16 times more likely to be in their third generation of, of poverty. Um, in fact, they're 40% more likely to be in their third generation of poverty than white 30-somethings are uh, to just be poor. Um, so pretty, uh, pretty huge disparities. Now, that's in part because the grandparents uh, had a lot of inequality. As you can imagine, 1970 was not that far removed from uh, the civil rights victories of the 60s. Um, but we also found that that uh, it's sort of the ability to get out of poverty um, and the risk of falling back into poverty uh, over generations. Uh, those are uh, those are both worse for African Americans as well. Um, and so it it, it really um, gives a, a deeper picture of disadvantage um, that I think is important to take into consideration when we when we uh, compare black and white outcomes today and think about opportunity and, and intergenerational mobility. So um, just to clear some of the underbrush for a second, um, you're talking about income, not wealth, right? So explain the, explain the difference in this context and why you're not looking at wealth. Not that I would imagine there's a vast pool of wealth that would change these numbers in ways that, you know, would be significant, but I think it's an important point to make regardless, right? For sure. Yeah. So, uh, so the difference between income and wealth, um, is, is the difference between, you know, what economists call a flow and a stock. And I, I promise this episode, I, I, I read the reader comments from, uh, you know, my previous visits. I'm going to try real hard not to get too much in the weeds, uh, uh, this episode. Um, income is kind of a flow of resources that come, right? Everybody knows like you get a paycheck, uh, every couple of weeks, um, you receive income on a monthly basis, an annual basis, whatever. Uh, wealth is is kind of the buildup of you know all the income that you get uh, that you don't spend, and so it's it's a it's a measure of the resources that you have on hand that reflect you know all of the income you've received over time, um, less how much of it you've you've spent, um, and both are important. Uh, Racial inequalities in wealth actually are quite a bit bigger than, than racial inequalities in income. Uh, and so that would certainly be of interest, too, to look at three generations um, of wealth mobility. And there, there is one paper that's done that. 
Uh, but for us, you know, income is kind of a more basic uh, measure of um, of what people have on hand to pursue whatever ends they want to pursue in life. Um, and it had never been done before. So, uh, so we just felt like it was important, uh, to take a look at that. Now, were I to, uh, take, uh, your listeners down a, a, uh, infinitely interesting rabbit hole of wonkery, um, you know, there are, there are a lot of problems with measuring wealth as well that make it, uh, just a trickier measure to look at. Um, and I won't go there unless prompted. <laughs> um, I, um, but again, I mean, I, I think as a general proposition, if you are, have poverty level income, the idea that your intergenerational, that your wealth will be wildly, you know, in excess of what you would expect from being a poor person. It's just a very unlikely thing because you, you have very little money to save to acquire wealth. And if you had, if you had property or these other things, you might have, you would have changed circumstances that maybe wouldn't have led to three generations of intergenerational poverty. Right. So, I mean, I, my point is, is it, it, income is a pretty good stand in for the wealth point as well too. Right. For sure. Especially if you're doing what we're doing, which is looking at, you know, whether people are able to escape the bottom fifth. Um, if we were looking at, you know, people who start out in the middle class, uh, how likely is it that, that they are uh, worse than middle class as adults? You know, you can imagine wealth could be uh, potentially be an interesting part of the story there. Although wealth is so, you know, unequally distributed that, um, that, that wealth for the middle class, you know, really is, is home ownership and, and retirement savings. Um, so, so, so even there, I, I don't think uh, you get a different story using wealth than you, than you would with income. And, and so the, just trying to clear up more of the, um, the underbrush here, this is a subjective definition of poverty, right? You're saying the low, the bottom fifth. So we would all agree that, and I'm not, you know, I, I want to be upfront when I ask some of these questions, it is to clarify rather than to editorialize. I am not trying to say that, oh yeah, you know, they're better off even if they're still three generations in poverty. I'm just trying to paint the picture correctly. But the definition of what constitutes a poor person today is dramatically better off than what a poor person was in, say, uh, 1930s Alabama, right? I mean, just in terms of the resources available to a poor person in 2021, in the bottom fifth, um, the quality of life on, as an objective measure is very different. For sure. That's a great point. And it's one that we kind of uh, realized we'd not covered quite enough in the paper um, at the 11th hour. Um, but it is a case if you if you go to an appendix table in our paper, um, <laughs> you can actually see that, uh, for, for instance, for African-Americans in the bottom fifth, um, if you look at uh, at blacks in their 30s today um, who are in the bottom fifth and you compare them to their grandparents in the bottom fifth, um, they're something like two-thirds better off in an absolute sense uh, than their grandparents were. So being in the bottom fifth today is a much better standard of living um, than being in the bottom fifth uh, was in 1970. Um, that's, that's something that is surprisingly uh, difficult for, I think, folks on the left to admit, um, but it's absolutely true. 
Um, and normally when I do poverty research or income studies, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very uh, uh, adamant that uh, we should be looking at absolute poverty. In other words, there are these poverty measures, you know, that, that say, well, if, if, if the middle fifth is getting richer faster than the bottom is, then poverty hasn't really fallen. I disagree with that uh, strongly. Um, but when it comes to intergenerational mobility, I think it is important to, to think about both of those. So uh, the way I would put it is if the son of a security guard uh, is also stuck being a security guard when they wanted uh, at one point to be a professional computer programmer or whatever, um, then that's, that's a big social problem, even if he's a much better paid security guard than his, than his grandfather was. Um, so I, I view uh, this relative idea of, of, of intergenerational mobility being stuck in the bottom fifth as, as being at least as important um, for policy as, as whether you're still poor in some absolute sense. Sure. No, I, I get that. I just, get, having written a book about how liberal democratic capitalism was a good thing, um, taking the broad view of things, if you're grandparents were living on subsistence wages in the 1930s or 1950s or whatever it was, that's just a different level of deprivation in terms of indoor plumbing or electricity or, you know, even air conditioning, whatever. I mean, then today that doesn't excuse or mean that we don't, shouldn't have to care about the people in the bottom fifth, but there are always going to be people in the bottom fifth. The real issue here, it seems to me, isn't that there's a bottom fifth because we're never going to get rid of a bottom fifth because that's a fact of math. It's that the stickiness of the bottom fifth for a big chunk of African-Americans is the problematic thing. Right. And, and if that's the case, uh, what are your, and I know you and, and Richard see things slightly different on some of the, and therefore what, so I don't want, you don't have to speak for him, but, um, Why? Why did you have this finding? Um, yeah, no, it's a, it's a really important question. You're right. We didn't get to it at all in the paper. Um, I think Richard and I kind of agreed that, you know, if we talked too much about causes, uh, first it would make the paper longer. It took us way too long to write it in the first place. And we would end up uh, disagreeing a fair amount. Um, maybe not as much as, as you might think, but, but a fair amount. And, and similarly with, with sort of policy recommendations, we would have uh, had overlapping but quite different uh, ideas of, of what to do about it. Um, so, so in terms of why, um, I think that ends up being you know, just an incredibly complicated story. But I, I think ultimately, there's no getting away from the importance of history um, and uh, just the fact that for you know the better part of 400 years, um, African Americans were either enslaved or you know the vast majority of them were uh, were stuck in the Jim Crow South. Um, and even in the North, you know, certain, certainly there was geographic mobility, um, but even in the North, you know, institutions ranging from uh, employers to unions um, to realtors uh, uh, discriminated against uh, African-Americans. Uh, people uh, chose to live in different neighborhoods and abandoned neighborhoods if, uh, if African-Americans were moving in, um, created these conditions uh, that, uh, that, 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 that left people incredibly unequal at the starting line. And so, you know, if you look at just the grandparents in our study, for instance, um, 9% of the white grandparents were in the bottom fifth 
uh, of family income in 1970, but that was true 59% uh, of, of black grandparents. Um, so 1970, you know, it's a couple of years after the, uh, the Voting Rights Act is passed, fair housing uh, passed, um, and the Civil Rights Act earlier in the 60s. Uh, that's that's sort of um, a very unequal place uh, if you think of intergenerational mobility as a race. You know, there was different starting lines um, to begin with, and then I think you know the if you sort of removed racism overnight in 1970, uh, which which by the way we didn't, um, but but if if you had um, the conditions that we had sort of already set up at that point, uh, basically had created a machine for for immobility among African-Americans uh, in terms of concentrated poverty, um, which concentrates all of the things that go along with poverty, whether that's, um, you know, lower quality teachers, whether it's crime, whether it's family instability, um, whether it's kind of constricted aspirations, you name it, um, you know, by virtue of having concentrated a group of people into, into, into these mobility impeding neighborhoods, um, it was in some ways uh, highly unlikely that, that we were going to make a ton of progress uh, reducing racial inequality. So uh, I, I don't think conservatives are wrong, and we can, we can get into more of this stuff too, when um, they point, for instance, as, as a lot of people on Twitter did, for, uh, uh, when they point to differences in family structure, for instance. Family structure differences between blacks and whites are large and very, very important um, for, for upward mobility differences. Um, but it, it's sort of naive to, uh, to just point to that without any of the historical context and to sort of just say, well, it's just a matter of, um, you know, getting, getting people to make better decisions around, uh, around marriage and fertility. Um, we certainly want to be promoting the right message, I think on those things. Um, but, but there are also just deep seated reasons why blacks and whites differ on, on, on some of these things. Uh, and that, that complicates uh, policy solutions, um, uh, trying to figure out what to do about all this. Yeah, I want to obviously circle back to a bunch of that, um, particularly some of the neighborhood stuff. Um, did you, could you break down the geography of this at all? I mean, presumably this is not the poverty rate of African-Americans in Vermont is going to be different than the poverty rate of African-Americans in Michigan or Mississippi. Um, so Presumably, if we're going to try and get at the causes of some of this, looking at actually where this happens and where this doesn't seems like a good place to start. Is there a, is there a real ge geographic diversity on all this? Uh, so the, the best uh, evidence on that, I think, comes from Raj Chetty uh, and his team at Harvard, Like, uh, which is a, a statement that is often uttered. The best evidence comes from Raj Chetty and his team. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, he, he shows that there's pretty wide variation uh, across the country. Um, in terms of places that have high upward mobility uh, and low upward mobility. Now, he's just talking about two generations um, because that's that's sort of all the, the data allows for him to, to talk about. Um, but it's probably true you get the same patterns if you looked at the three-generation poverty. And, um, you know, he tends to find that places in the South, um, rural and urban, um, you know, have lower economic mobility rates than uh, other places in, oh, uh, sort of the... Uh, the Mountain West, for instance, Utah always ends up, you know, being sort of towards the top. Um, uh, parts of New England uh, tend to look good. Um, it, mostly these are just kind of pockets um, here and there that, that do better than other places. And, and he's got some interesting research trying to tease out 
you know, why, why that is. But uh, isn't but that I true? Just, but is that I mean, I, I, your curiosity question? Isn't that true directionally about whites and blacks that rural poverty, ac, you know, w- distance from markets and cultural centers and academic centers and yada, yada, yada is bad for upward mobility for whoever's living in those kinds of circumstances, even if it's worse in proportion for blacks? Yeah, I think, yeah, that's absolutely true. Um, and, and so there, I think a big part of the, the black white difference is just that. Uh, African-Americans tend to find themselves in contexts that are that look objectively bad for mobility. So uh, concentrated poverty you can think of as being like an urban neighborhood poverty uh, uh, concentration, or you can think of it as, you know, there are rural equivalents of concentrated poverty. Um, for instance, you know, there's this, uh, there's this band that sort of corresponds strikingly with the old cotton belt, um, you know, from the American South, in the 19th century, uh, which today, you know, remains a, a, a place that has remarkably low upward mobility. And, and they're also just, you know, heavily African-American. Uh, <laughs> you can, you can line up maps that show like democratic voting in the, in these States, you know, we're talking about Alabama and Mississippi and Louisiana and, you know, the, 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 the voting patterns, there's like a, a, a democratic voting strip, um, that goes through these, uh, these counties as well. Um, and that's because they're heavily African-American. So, um, so even there, um, historical patterns, you know, do continue to leave an imprint, uh, as well. Um, beyond that, you know, I, I don't think we have a, a, a great sense of which places do, uh, which places have smaller black, white gaps in mobility, for instance, um, the Chetty team, uh, their data would definitely be the place to start on that, but it's, it's not anything that we could look at in our paper uh, because we don't have access to the uh, to this gold standard um, uh, IRS data that uh, that Chetty has. Um, and but, why not? Yeah. Uh, so the the Treasury Department is is very careful about who gets access to that data. Um, Chetty uh, accessed it, uh, you know, at this point probably a decade ago. Uh, there, there's, there are there are uh, theories about how he how he he got it. I mean, the the the, the short answer is he applied and, and received permission to use it. Um, but because of it's like he worked for ProPublica or something. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or you know, or or you know, was a student of uh, influential professors. Or um, I mean, honestly, if you wanted one person to have access to this data, you, you know, I would my vote would probably have been for Raj Chetty anyway. So. Uh, so I think it's good that uh, that you didn't get access to it. Um, but no, I just you know, think it's are... funny because I'm 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 not a data geek. I think we can all agree on that. Um, <laughs> but uh, I always love listening to people like you or Strain or whoever. It's a there's a certain Glenn Gary Glenn Ross thing about I need the leads. I need the Glenn Gary leads. You know, I need the data. I need the IRS data. There's this like data data set envy. I think is one of the more endearing nerdiness things i'm exposed to on a regular basis <laughs> yeah data set envy is a very very real thing um we're all we're all just living in in chetty's world uh uh in a lot of ways um but no there i mean there are reasons to keep it you know to worry about the confidentiality of it it is it's ultimately it's people's tax returns and stuff so uh but but yeah most of the surveys uh like the one that w- that we used just aren't big enough you know to, we we barely were able uh, to, uh, to look at three generations. We had to sort of, um, you know, uh, 
tweak the the parent sample in weird ways. So we don't have a representative. We don't have all of the grandkids of a representative group of of grandparents. Um, and we and we yeah we we show that that's not that's probably not a big concern for our analyses. But but yeah, trying to trying to uh, whittle it down by geography or anything else, even separately for men and women, would have would have been really interesting to do. Um, based on research that Richard and I have done uh, before this one, but we just couldn't do it. Yeah. So speaking of men and women, though, um, um, I listened to the Cafeteria Brookings podcast that you guys did together, and this is one of the places where there was not so much disagreement, but um, sort of differently weighted agreement, I think is one way to think about it. Um, uh, The findings for men and women in terms of black, uh, black men and black women in terms of mobility are pretty striking. Can you just sort of r- give a broad brush picture either from the study or previous studies um, about what that looks like? Yeah, they are really striking findings. Uh, we, we released, uh, Richard and I wrote a paper a couple of years ago uh, where, where we were, uh, we were trumped by a Chetty paper that, uh, that actually ended up finding largely the same thing. Um, so if you look at uh, intergenerational mobility, and the outcome that you're interested in is individual earnings. So not family income. Family income is kind of all the income from every member of a family that you aggregate together. Um, it, it, if you look just at individual earnings, um, we, we, we looked at black-white differences in mobility there. And it turns out there that black women um, have intergenerational mobility that is uh, as strong uh, in terms of upward mobility out of the bottom is as strong for black women as for white women, um, which is very surprising to us. And it's not the case for men. Um, there's a big gap. Uh, I think, uh, African-American men are something like twice as likely as white men to, uh, to not be able to escape the bottom, uh, fifth, um, in adulthood if they start in the bottom fifth. So you get this really interesting disparity, uh, between, uh, men and women on this racial gap. If you look at individual earnings, now, if you switch to family income as being the outcome that you're interested in, uh, you get a totally different picture. So, uh, w- so when you do that, uh, both black men, but especially black women, have uh, less upward mobility out of the bottom uh, than white men and women. Um, and so, why is that? Well, I think you know probably one big answer is um, is differences in marriage. Um, uh, marriage rates are much lower uh, in the African American community than in the white community. If you have uh, two, if you have a married couple, you know you, you have two potential workers rather than just one potential worker, um, and therefore family income uh, is is likely to be higher. Uh, we did try to test that. This is one of the more creative, uh, but but borderline uh, perverse ideas. Uh, that I've ever had. Uh, we, we tried to say like, okay, but what would happen if black women and white women had the same marriage rates? Um, but how do you, how do you create that counterfactual world? Uh, uh, what would that look like? And the idea I came up with was, well, let's marry the, the data set that we were using, you know, starts with, with adolescence and then follows them into adulthood. Um, so for any woman that we follow into adulthood, uh, a bunch of them have brothers and we also follow the brothers into adulthood. So uh, what we did is we married people off to their brothers um, <laughs> as, as sort of a good proxy for maybe what their marriage pool looked like uh, as adults. Um, 
And we found that that uh, reduced racial gaps a little bit, but but not as much as you would think. Um, and so I, I think marriage rates are an important part of the story, but uh, but certainly not the whole story. Um, but but it is it is remarkable that uh, that, that whereas black white inequality in terms of earnings mobility for women is so small, uh, it, it it's vast for uh, when you look at family income. And so, I mean, I, I feel like the 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 circle is not completely closed on explaining that for the average listener is that is the implication there because the individual female income is also the sum total of the family income because they're the sole wage earner is it because there's a husband who is not carrying the load or there's not a husband there at all i mean like explain why there's a such a marked discrepancy between individual mobility and family income mobility. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so so this is this is kind of speculation on my part because we didn't really have a chance to to dig into it, but but kind of my interpretation of it is in addition to differences in marriage being important, um it's also the case that uh that black men in particular uh experience such uh powerful uh labor market problems um in terms of uh, not being employed or having lower earnings, that even when we tried to kind of equalize marriage um, using using this uh, this idea that I had, um, you still get big differences simply because uh, for for black women adding uh, a husband isn't as isn't as much of a bump as it is uh, for for white women adding a husband, um, and so part of the story it, it, you know does revolve around the the original finding we had that the black men have. Uh, have so much lower upward mobility out of the bottom in terms of earnings um, that that actually does translate into problems uh, for Black women's um, family income mobility as well. Um, so that that sort of just pushes the question back again, you know, which is sort of well, why why is it that uh, Black men have lower uh, earnings upward mobility than white men? And and again, I think there you end up in this thicket of um, you know historical forces and. The impact of growing up in uh, in in impoverished neighborhoods, certainly for men, I think you have you know it, it, it makes a whole lot more sense to to really look at family structure differences as being a big part of the story. Um, a lot of research, including Chetty's, um, shows that the presence of fathers, and in particular the presence of black fathers, um, uh, in the communities where boys grow up. Uh, does does improve upward mobility outcomes uh, for black men, um, but all of these issues, you know, they're they're, they're sort of uh, they've they've been kind of debated in in graduate uh, graduate student classes for fifty years, and probably will will continue to be graduate uh, to to be debated um, moving forward. Um, but but I I think on at some point you just need to try a bunch of different uh, policy ideas and sort of see what works. And, uh, that's where I've evolved a little bit in thinking that ultimately, like, we're just, we're just limited as to being able to explain some of these differences in terms of rank ordering, you know, which, which things are most important. Um, and at the end of the day, we've just got to try, uh, to narrow them. Yeah. And so it's funny. I mean, uh, this, this issue, uh, listeners of this podcast know, I've mentioned this a few times, the, when I try to explain to people why Jews are liberal, I invoke social science and say it's a overdetermined phenomenon because I can give you like 10 different reasons. And 
for some individual Jews, all 10 reasons apply. And then for some individual Jews, only one reason applies. And then for most, it's like these Venn diagrams where, you know, the FDR coalition and the um, uh, response to the Holocaust and civil rights are really important. And then for the other ones, it's it's because they're urban and they're intellectual. And that's what's really important. And it's it's a scattershot and it's overdetermined. It's very difficult to do. And I think you can make sim- similar point about some of these problems for, you know, intergenerational poverty is the rural thing is going to be really important for someone who's living in a rural place, but much, much less important for somebody who's not. And the thing that connects the two has to do with the, the, the cultural milieu of what's similar about the cultural milieu of those neighborhoods and how it doesn't encourage upward mobility. Racism is obviously going to be hugely explanatory in some cases, and maybe not that explanatory in others. And the problem with talking about this stuff is, is, as you probably know better than I, but like I got my start working at AI for a neocon and, and who wrote about welfare and all these kinds of things is the second you start talking about family structure, you start going the way of the Moynihan report and you start getting accused of blaming the victim. And I think LBJ's argument about affirmative action Forget the policy that was actually implemented or what it became or any of that kind of stuff, but just sort of as you were indicating earlier, just as a matter of rhetoric and, and reasoning, his argument has a lot of merit to it, is that you can't have someone who's been hobbled for 400 years and then expect him to start at the, fin- at the starting line and be able to compete as well as people who haven't, who've had a lot of other opportunities and weren't depressed. I think that's all totally legit. It's also in some ways beside the point, right? Because if you're trying to fix the problem, getting so hung up on the historical injustice of it is, is fine for a seminar. But if you actually want to fix the problem, at some point you got to say, okay, we get it. This was bad, <laughs> but now we got to fix the problem. We'll argue about who started the fire some other time. We got to put the fire out, right? And so I'm, I'm sorry to monologue here, but so in terms of how to put the fire out, right? Well, let's just stipulate bad things were done it's a huge stain on America, blah, 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 blah. I'm not trying to dismiss it. I'm just trying to concede it quickly. Um, what are the things that you see as the most, if, if, if you're saying try a bunch of different things and Richard got to try a bunch of different things and each of you were given three things, what are the three things that you would want to try most? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great question. And I, and I, and I totally agree with you. I think, um, you know the the I'll, I'll even go further than you. I think you know the moral case for reparations. I think is is actually like quite strong. Um, uh, would it reduce the the mobility gaps that we found? I actually don't think it would, um, and, and that goes partly to just my skepticism of how important income is for solving problems, um, uh, and, and partly to other uh, 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 values preferences, I guess, but. Um, so I, I, I totally agree with you that kind of regardless of, of your stance on sort of the historical roots of all of this, um, you know, what do you, what you do at the end of the day uh, is, is likely not to necessarily depend on any of that. Um, the, the three things that I guess I would push, um, the first would be to close gaps in early childhood. Um, you know, by the time kids enter kindergarten, um, there are, there's already a fairly sizable, 
uh, black-white gap in, in the test scores on average of kids entering, uh, entering kindergarten. Um, there's a lot of, you know, suspicion around test scores and mistrust of them, but, but there's actually quite a bit of research that you know, these are real differences in academic preparedness to the extent that, you know, five-year-olds can, can have academic preparedness, um, that, that exists then and that exists when kids leave school, uh, in, in high school. And so, yeah, we've got to do something about those gaps. In fact, you can go earlier. There, there are big black, white gaps in, uh, infant mortality rates and, and low birth weight. Um, those have gotten smaller over time. Um, so we, we shouldn't be despondent that there's nothing we can do about that. Um, Some of that's it, prenatal it, nutrition and, and that exactly, kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Yep, exactly. It's, it's sort of, you know, the impact of, uh, of, of poverty and uh, education and cultural influences on uh, on, on pregnant women, um, family structure, you know, probably enters into the story there. If, if black women are less likely to have uh, support from a partner during their pregnancy, that can translate into all sorts of stress, which then makes its way in utero. Um, again, a very complicated phenomenon, but, uh, but we can't sort of close our eyes to the fact that there, that, that, that these gaps do open up very early on. Um, so early childhood, uh, I've proposed, uh, creating an office of opportunity in the white house, um, that would basically, uh, send a bunch of seed funding, um, to local, uh, policy experiments, um, as ways of trying to figure out, you know, how to, how to increase, um, preparedness for school that, that wouldn't even have the goal necessarily of reducing black, white gaps, but that would just target kids who are not, uh, uh, as prepared for school as we would like. Um, it's definitely true. Conservatives, I think, have another really important point here that, that you know, we don't have a lot of examples of success to point to. Um, you know, you can love the Perry Preschool Program from the 1960s that um, was was just heavily, heavily resourced in a way that is never going to happen. And I don't even mean in terms of budgets, in terms of the time investment uh, of the of the people that were involved. Um in, in helping these kids, nothing like that's ever going to scale up at the national level. Head Start is, you know, our best attempt to do that. And Head Start's been, been pretty disappointing, um, in terms of, of its impacts. Uh, so we don't know what to do. We shouldn't let that stop us. We should, we should try to learn what to do. Um, a second area that I would, that I would focus on, uh, would be reforming our safety nets. Um, uh, I've been writing a lot about this, unfortunately, since the child allowance debate started in uh, January or February. Um, we do have to be very careful about the incentives that are embedded in our safety net programs, um, uh, whether they are discouraging work, um, discouraging marriage um, and marital childbearing, um, whether they're discouraging savings, human capital investment, uh, you name it. Um Again, this is something I think is important apart from black-white opportunity gaps, um, but because there are these poverty differences between blacks and whites, um, they end up being important for, for reducing the uh, black-white mobility gap, I think. Um, and there we actually you know, do have some sense of what to do. The, the welfare reforms of the 1990s, uh, in my view, were quite successful at, um, uh, at reducing poverty, increasing work. Um, there's less evidence that they, you know, uh, had, had positive impacts on, on marriage and family structure, although a bunch of trend, a few trends that were getting bad for decades, like stopped getting worse. Um, they didn't, they didn't necessarily improve, but, uh, but they stopped getting worse. Um, so that's a place where I think we can experiment more with 
things like work requirements and time limits in, in other safety net programs, uh, and where we can better design the tax credit programs, for instance, uh, that, that low-income workers get, uh, the child tax credit or income tax credit. I'll have a, a paper on that, on, on, ref, on reforms to those two uh, policies coming out shortly. And that paper will also include where I, I think a, a, a third policy idea that I would advocate is doing something uh, along the lines of baby bonds, um, which these days, so the idea of a baby bond is that uh, kids get um, a savings account uh, that the federal government makes some contributions to. Um, and then by the time they reach 18, they've got something of a nest egg build up that built up that they can use for higher ed or buying a home or whatever other purposes. Um, this is an idea that's sort of right now associated with Cory Booker and, and, and probably folks on the left. Um, it has had some bipartisan support in the past, at least iterations of it. Um, the uh, New America Foundation had a bipartisan coalition that included people like Rick Santorum, um, you know, a decade ago that uh, that were advocating for these sorts of accounts. And I, th I think the nice thing about them uh, is that you can limit the ways that the funds are used. Um, and by doing so, uh, you can perhaps incentivize parents and the kids themselves uh, when when they're when they're teenagers to uh, to sort of shift their aspirations and the behaviors uh, that they're using to get there um, in hopes of having this nest egg at the end that uh, that, that will help them uh, advance in life. So uh, those those would be probably my top three family structure, early childhood and uh, uh, or safety net, uh, early, early childhood and, and baby bonds. And, and also, uh, sort of breaking up concentrated poverty would be my, if I could sneak in a fourth, um, I, I think that would be important to either through, you know, some housing vouchers, um, that had conditions attached to them or just by, uh, zoning reforms and, and land use reforms, um, that would, that would give people more choice as to where they can live. Um, I want to come back to zoning cause that's sort of my new grind these days, but, um, um, I think the last time you were on, certainly it's a, something that we've talked about before and I've heard you talk about before, and it's also sort of a Brookings joint too, is this whole success sequence thing, right? Success sequence, uh, get as, get a high school degree, uh, get as much education as you can get your education before you get married, get married before you have a kid, your odds of being in poverty are very, very, very low. Right. Um, and in your intergenerational data, could you find how many people who were three generations of poverty that had followed the success sequence or hadn't followed the success? I mean, like, how does it play into the findings of this, this percentage that stayed, what was it, 18%? I can't remember, 28% that stayed, um, had three generations of poverty? 21%. Would that have been true in 1970? Would it have got them out of to the bottom quintile? I mean, it just explain it to me. Yeah, no, it's, it's a great question. Um, we probably could come close to looking at that. So the success sequence, um, you know, this is probably something your listeners have, have heard about, um, but maybe not have, have read in depth on. It's interesting that there is no kind of one success sequence. It's, it's sort of been proposed slightly differently over the years by different people. The basic idea is, you know, if you graduate from high school, um, and then you wait until you're married uh, before you have kids uh, and you work full time, then your chances of being in poverty are very low on the order of 2% or something like that. Um, 
so uh, so I think we could sort of look at that in the data. There, there, there. It might not. It's tricky to kind of figure out. All right, who waited until they were married before they had kids? Um, but but possible to look at. Uh, and I suspect you know that that that's a formula uh, that probably you know was was just as uh, successful um, in 1970 as it is today. I would it's think a, more so in part because the nature of work was such that if you had a high school degree, there were all sorts of well-paying jobs in the late 60s, early 70s, you know, just, you know, just uh, strong back, good work ethic jobs that used to be middle class jobs. Um, so I would think, if anything, the, the value of the success sequence has declined over time, but maybe I'm wrong about that. Yeah, no, I think it's probably right. You can imagine, you know, if, if there was more discrimination in 1970, you know, maybe maybe it wouldn't have been as uh, as as good for African Americans. But actually, that's true today. That it's it's not actually uh, it, it doesn't predict success as well uh, for African Americans today as it does for whites. Um, but but yeah, it, it, I think so. The success the success sequence, I think, is exactly the right message um, to be giving kids. Um, it's a little bit tautological from a uh, from an empirical perspective in other words if you if you have a full-time job um, you know that alone uh, is going to keep most people out of poverty um, and it's not a simple matter necessarily of having a full-time job right especially in a recession um, uh, so I, so I think it's kind of like the Protestant work ethic is, is a self-fulfilling prophecy right I mean it's that's I, I get what you mean yeah yeah, for sure. And, and, and I think it's a great message to send kids. You know, our colleague Ian Rowe um, had a really successful uh, network of charter schools that, uh, that, that emphasize this message. Um, as it turns out, this paper that I'm writing, Reforming the Child Tax Credit and Earned Income Tax Credit, uh, is also going to be proposing a baby bond uh, proposal that, that would be tied to the, to the success sequence. Um, and, and, and the reason I want to do that is because I do think it's a great it's a great uh, script to follow uh, for kids, and to the extent that following that script um, not only leads to these theoretical outcomes, but actually would lead to receiving, uh, you know, uh, fifteen twenty five thousand uh, dollars of a nest egg um, by the time you, that that, uh, uh, that you reach, reach adulthood. That potentially can be a, a pretty powerful incentive that will also uh, expand upward mobility. Um, so I, I, I do think the success sequence is, is, is really important. Um, I think the trap conservatives tend to fall into is in, in just sort of leaving it up to people to bootstrap themselves, right? That like, oh, if you, if you just wait until you're married to have a kid, uh, and work full time, um, what could be easier, right? And, and, and that, that is easy in some contexts, uh, but in other contexts, it's, uh, you know, it borders on being rare. Um, and, and so how do you, uh, convince more people to, to, to follow that script? Well, partly it's, it's by like telling them, like, if you follow this script, you're going to have uh, much better outcomes. Um, uh, so there's gotta be a little bit of, uh, I think emphasis on personal responsibility, um, but also, you know, some, some nuance and some emphasis on responsibility for policy, uh, and also helping to to kind of create these uh, these outcomes too. Yeah, I mean, this is sort of like why I like the idea of trying a dozen things, and everyone of a different ideological stripe gets to advocate for three. And that way, <laughs> and as long as you're honest about the results, you know, it's that's the better way to do it because everyone's got priors. And I'll be I'll be just 
flatly open about my priors is that I'm one of these guys who thinks that bourgeois morality is good regardless of race. And I want this to remain and be a bourgeois middle-class morality country, multi-ethnic, great by me, doesn't bother me at all. I, I, you know, bourgeois Indian and Asian Americans, I think are awesome. You know, I, same thing with any ethnic group. I, I think it's fine by me. Um, but the important thing to me is don't tell people like there's so much stuff out there that says that I think actually has more to do with sexual politics and feminist politics and gay politics, intersectionality yada, than actually has to do with race stuff that says you can't talk about family structure because that is delegitimizing marginal blah, blah, blah. And I basically say nonsense because first of all, gay marriage, one of the great things about gay marriage, you know, whether, where, whether you like it or hate it or are ambivalent is that it had the net effect of bourgeoisifying large numbers of gay people in this country is now they're worried about like making car payments and paying for kids college tuition and, and all that kind of stuff. And to me, that's a net improvement. And the people who say that, um, you know, bourgeois morality is just for white people, I think are doing an incredible disservice to non-white people because bourgeois morality at, at, at scale is basically what brought us the enlightenment and or I should say brought us the economic, brought us economic modernity in, you know, in, in large part. And so one of the things I think about is like, and Tom Sowell makes this point about the 1960s is, is if you could look at families where there were that subscribed to newspapers and had library cards, black families who subscribed to library had library cards and newspapers and these other indicia, um, had had greater household wealth than comparable white families. And to me, that is, it's not the library cards that made them wealthy. It is the, the values that come with wanting a library card for your kids that, that brings these things. And but I'm totally open to like trying some of the more systemic kind of things. The thing that strikes me, and I, I promise I'll stop monologuing again, that frustrates me about so much of this stuff is that the vast amount of debate about these kinds of issues that you find in, on cable TV or on the op-ed pages is about elite, successful, meritocratic blacks wanting to protect their own, you know, it's sort of like the people on CNBC who talk up their book, you know, like not, we could fix, we could, we could admit a lot more black people into Harvard. It wouldn't touch, at least not for a very, very, very long time, the people in the bottom fifth quintile. And, um, so much of the elite conversations about this stuff is more about grievance peddling than it's actually about trying to fix some of these problems at the, at the ground level. So, I mean, I guess, you know, like when you hear people say it's all about systemic racism, you know, my view is, okay, maybe it is, but let's fix the problem. Um, what is your sort of response to it? Yeah. I, so I would agree that a lot of the objection to kind of the more, uh, you know, sort of ideas that are grounded in bourgeois morality, um, a lot of those objections do come from elites, um, you know, black, white, other, I would say. Uh, I, I think back to sort of uh, the welfare reform debates, which are now live again um, after 20 years. Um, you know, some of some of the biggest uh, haters 
of the old cash welfare program that we had were people that were receiving assistance um, and who, who sort of knew that it was uh, a program that had a lot of incentives uh, that, that weren't good for them um, and who were eager to reform the systems so that they could become independent. Um, and a lot of the criticism, you know, was from folks who uh, had never like had any experience that was remotely close to their being uh, reliant on public assistance. The family structure stuff is frustrating to me personally uh, because I've been a single dad. Um, I'm, I'm in a pretty complicated family uh, right now, um, and I think anybody who's been a single parent, you know, can. It's it's not at all uh, uh, debatable about you know whether kids uh, suffer consequences from that. Even if it's you know, a, am I worried that my kid is going to end up in the bottom fifth? Like I'm not. Maybe maybe I should be. Um, but I, I don't think she is, but you know, she's, she's had a lot of, uh, of, of stresses, um, by virtue of the complications that, that happen with, with single parent families and blended families and all of that. Um, so it's a, it's a point that I don't think is all that controversial among people who have actually experienced it. Um, and, and so, yeah, I think, I think a lot of the sort of disdain from elites for some of these ideas you know, has a lot to do with signaling um, uh, the, the, the current uh, focus on systemic racism. You know, again, I would I would not at all uh, argue that racism is gone and that discrimination isn't important. But I do think in most domains, it's not at all uh, the, the, the primary explanation um, for black-white inequality in, in a range of outcomes. Um, and so I think to focus there is not going to get you the most bang for the buck if if your primary interest is in reducing these these gaps um you know a, a phrase like systemic racism i think just obscures more than it illuminates it's it's a way of saying you know we think that these different differences in outcomes are unjust and unfair and we think it's due to in some way to differential treatment but it doesn't provide any kind of guidance about like oh you know, is it is it that teachers are uh, are discriminatory? Um, you know, in a near universal way. Um, you know, is it is it the that the criminal justice system is irrevocably discriminatory? Um, versus there are you know, if you if you look at victimization surveys, there are very big uh, black white differences in in who's victimized by crime, and and it's African Americans who who uh, are disproportionately crime victims. Um, that, you know, isn't about, uh, discriminatory treatment in the criminal justice system, at least in, in any simple, in, in any simple way. So at the end of the day, it, it, it's really important to, you know, really think hard about, um, you know, where the, the biggest bang for the buck is, uh, in attacking these problems. And, and if I think conservatives, you know, are sort of a little too indifferent about, about the existence of some of these gaps, um, or too despondent about the possibility of closing them. I, I think liberals, you know, are just greatly oversimplifying uh, what's behind them, and and thereby making it more difficult to to, to craft policies that would be effective in, in closing them. Yeah, I mean, the, I mean, listeners don't want to hear me rant about defund the police again, but you know, crime is a wildly regressive tax on poor people, and black people are disproportionately poor. And, um, 
And it's not just the victimization, it's the law, the property values. I mean, you talk about inter one of the things about intergenerational wealth is even if you own a home in a poor neighborhood, if it's crime plagued, you're not going to pass on an asset that would be, you know, much more valuable if it started, if the neighborhood started to gentrify because crime went down, you know, and you can go and same thing with food deserts and you go down a very long list of things and the, the sort of invincible condescension and arrogance of elites in Washington, New York, talking about defunding the police when African-Americans, according to every survey, say they they want either more police or the same amount. You know, they want better policing, which is a legitimate thing to want. But, um, you know, they don't want to just hand over the neighborhood to criminals. And it's it that mismatch drives me crazy. I did want to ask again, because I'm obviously fishing for my priors here and I'm <laughs> I'm honest about it. Um I'd be, I, I know it's out of the purview of, of this study in particular, but sort of along the same lines as the Tom Sowell point about library cards. Um, I would be really interested to know if you could, if, if Chetty or if you know of some other study that touches on this, could tease out the intergenerational poverty of poor West Indian or African immigrants who come to the United States, right? Because if the argument is that systemic racism, well, you know, if the, if those people are, and I don't mean, mean those people pejoratively, if those people are also of the same ethnicity, then the explanatory power of racism is at least lessened a little bit. And my point about the importing bourgeois values is is increased and i understand a lot of immigrants come from different backgrounds that's why i said poor immigrants rather than just you know i think the 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 ethnic group and i love pointing this out to to some of my conservative friends the ethnic group um i believe that has the highest rate of phds in this country are nigerians um but anyway uh is there something that touches on that uh, is there something uh, in in our analyses? In either your analysis or you know or elsewhere. Again, I, I'm I, again I'm just trying to intellectually, honestly fish for my priors here. So. Sure. Yeah. No. So um, so there's there's definitely been some work on that. Uh, there's uh, a, a really important and fantastic sociologist Orlando Patterson who himself is uh, from Jamaica, um, and he's written about it. Uh, there's the book I would recommend, I guess, to your readers that I'm aware of, uh, that I think is the most interesting and nuanced, is by Mary Waters. It's called Black Identities, um, and 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 what she does is essentially look at uh, immigrants who Americans would consider black, uh, who often you know go to great pain, great pains to uh, distinguish themselves from American-born uh, African Americans, um, uh, and. And what's fascinating about it is it, it sort of identifies different groups of black immigrants who, who do kind of adopt these different cultural repertoires. Some uh, really do almost define themselves in opposition to African-Americans um, as, as a way of trying to, uh, well, to distinguish themselves um, either to employers or to, you know, other whites that they, uh, they come in contact with. Um, others sort of find that they meet the same kind of discrimination that African Americans um, uh, meet with, um, uh, and and end up taking a similarly downward uh, path as a lot of um, American-born uh, blacks. 
and and so it's interesting because it 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 it, it conveys the the full complexity, you know, which is that uh, there are there are sort of ways of uh, adopting you know bourgeois culture, if you want to say that. Um, that that does look like it sort of promotes upward mobility and and uh, but then there are also these constraints to uh, to doing that um, in the form of discrimination that that some people come up against. Also, second generation, you know, the second generation. There's, a, I mean, I remember this from my old demo, demography days. You know, Alba and these guys found. You know, there's a lot of the 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 children of African or West Indian immigrants assimilated into African American culture pretty seamlessly and you know back then there was a very bad term for it called assimilating down which they didn't mean they didn't mean racist they meant uh, into sort of um lower class culture rather than trying to assimilate up to middle class culture but anyway it, go yep, on, I'm sorry. that's exactly right alba reference that's that's impressive <laughs> <laughs> on multiple elf- ethnics i mean i read all that stuff back in the day takes me um, back takes me yeah. back um yeah, no, obviously comparing comparing native born Americans and uh and, and immigrants is tricky uh, on any number of fronts, just because as you say, you know, the the sort of selection immigrants are not a representative sample of uh of people from their home countries either. They're they're sort of the people that took the risk uh to start over and come to a new land. And um uh so I I th- I think there's some purchase to be gained from those sorts of comparisons. Um but it also has a little bit of the of the flavor of some of the, some of the aspects of the success sequence that um, that maybe seem simple but aren't like oh you know if you just adopt uh, the bourgeois culture that uh, some of these West Indian immigrants have you know you'll 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 find great success like what could be easier um, and of course you know if, if you've if you are being raised by American born blacks who have lived their entire lives uh, in the United States uh, having received signals. Um, either intermittently or continuously, um, you know, that, that sort of raised doubts about uh, whether, you know, playing by the rules um, uh, is going to lead to to strong outcomes. You know, that's a very different situation, I think. So. Yeah, no, I, look, I think that's totally fair. And I wasn't trying to make it a cut and dry thing. You know, my, 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 late, my sister-in-law who died a few months ago um, was Haitian and um, uh, and I'd know a little bit of her family and having grown up in New York, you knew, you know, a lot of different kinds of African-Americans. And it was, it was something that African-Americans would joke about. I remember the old living color skit was <laughs> called Haymon, where a West Indian family, the head guy, you know, the head the Damon Wayans character would yell at his son for only having five jobs or something like that. Right. Um, um the way the Wayans brothers uh, have have a lot to offer. I think the discourse these days. I, I would be in favor of uh, more more Wayans brothers uh, references. Okay, so let, let's change gears a little bit um, because, despite the incredible power of this podcast, I don't feel like we're going to solve intergenerational poverty, um, African American or otherwise, in the minutes we have left. Um, You've been part of, I mean, it, so just broadly, broadly speaking, um, the world of a right of center, uh, poverty, uh, family formation, uh, mobility wonk is an interesting one these days. There's an, there's a, there's a lot of ferment, 
Um, and in some ways, I think this is a very good thing that even though I have my sharp disagreements with some of the new nationalist industrial policy types and all of that, um, the, the pan-ethnic working class party arguments, I think, are sometimes are more bumper stickers than real arguments, but whatever, put that, put that aside. Um, it's also better that just there, these arguments are coming back on the right, which, because they had been gone for a while. The problem is that one of the reasons they're coming back is because I think a lot of people are introducing some bad ideas. Um, and so you're one of the, you know, as, both as an AEI guy and because of your, you know, your reputation and your scholarship, you're one of these linchpin guys in this whole argument. Um, recently there was a big brouhaha about, um, about, uh, American fertility declining and family and people having as many kids as they want. You got into a bit of a contretemps with our friend and colleague, uh, uh, Lyman Stone, a, 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 a remnant listener fan, uh, you know, fan favorite. Um, what I was busy, so I couldn't, <laughs> and, I, and I like both you guys and I didn't want to get into it. And I kind of felt like, um, I felt like, Chandler from Friends having to do his crazy dance because his parents were fighting. Uh, what was that all about? What is the argument in general about? Um, and 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 where do you come down on it? Yeah. Uh, so it, it all sort of started uh, a, a few months back when the child allowance um, uh, passed as part of the American Recovery Plan or Rescue Plan Act. Um, for, for people that don't know, you know, there's this thing called the child tax credit that we've had for uh, 20 years. Uh, and the Biden administration um, expanded it so that for the first time you could get it without working. Um, and they, they made it more generous. But 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 the a big thing was that, that you can now receive uh, three thousand uh, bucks per kid or thirty six hundred for, for younger kids um, per year without working. Um, and so there's been. A, a big rift in conservative circles uh, between, I would say, traditional anti-poverty people like myself who worry about work disincentives. Like if you if you can get uh, that much money in one year, um, is that going to cause some some people not to work? And uh, and and that deal, by the way, will be more appealing uh, to single mothers who have to shoulder you know all the burdens of work in their in their families. So will it potentially also increase single parenthood um, versus? Uh, kind of an, a, a weird coalition of, I would say, you know, the national conservative types who kind of think the economy is is sort of failing at every turn. I'm, I'm going to caricaturize a little bit, um, uh, sort of the American Compass view of of how the how the economy is is failing people, um, with the the old the old school reformer cons. You know, if you if I take you all the way back to uh, 2014, uh, you know, when, when reform conservatives uh, were pushing expansions to the child tax credit, um, and this this group on the right who are sort of called pro natalists, um, which makes it sound like everybody else is kind of anti anti uh, chi- childbearing, um, but but the pro natalists basically believe that uh, you know we Americans have too few kids and they would like to have more, and it's economic constraints um, that are getting in the way. So so. The support among these groups for expanding the child tax credit um, uh, is because they believe that it will help a lot of working class and middle class families who would like to have more kids or who would like to have 
one parent in the home while the other parent works that'll help more more people to to do so. So I've mostly stuck in my lane as an anti-poverty person, um, but but I do have thoughts uh, about um, the, the the claim that Amer- that a lot of Americans um, are not having as many kids as they would like, uh, or um, are not able to adopt the traditional one breadwinner uh, model um, due to economic constraints, and so. I dipped a toe into uh, into this argument um, by writing something for the Dispatch, mm-hmm. fantastic publication, Thank you, um, <laughs> uh, where I basically, you know, found some data and said, "All right, let's let's see what the data shows," um, and I was able to look at uh, women in their mid thirties um, and compare how many kids that they'd had by their mid thirties to to the number of kids they said that they. Uh, expected to have or wanted to have um, when they were adolescents. So this this one data set follows them uh, over this entire period. So it's kind of neat. You can look back and see how many of them uh, kind of met their expectations as, as teens. And then what you can also do is, is take a, a different data set um, and look at people in their mid-30s, uh, say in, in the late 1990s, and also look back to their teens and see how many kids they wanted. So it's this test of whether essentially um, the older millennials uh, have been equally able to have the number of kids that they thought they wanted um, as compared with the older uh, boomers or the, uh, the the younger boomers, I'm sorry. Um, and what I found was essentially uh, the millennials have been just as successful uh, in meeting uh, the, the sort of fertility goals they set out uh, earlier on as uh, the boomers had been. So this idea that it's become increasingly difficult to have the number of kids that you want, I argued, didn't hold up. Um, and and so therefore, this argument that economic constraints have become more important and, and that's a rationale for expanding the child tax credit uh, sort of falls apart. Um, that's that's the, the the sort of broad outline I made. Um, Lyman Stone uh, had other other thoughts, uh, which <laughs> which didn't surprise me. Um, Lyman is a, a prolific um, researcher, uh, and he had some data that suggested that actually people have been increasingly less likely uh, to be able to meet their fertility expectations. Uh, end up being a very technical wonky back and forth. Um, and, you know, I, I think, uh, it, it sort of made me aware of the limitations of my analyses. Um, Lyman has some data suggesting that what I found for millennials is true, but that maybe Gen Z, uh, will have it worse, um, than the boomers. I'm very reluctant to, uh, to even say that's likely, um, but he does have some data that, that suggests uh, that that could happen. So it remains a little bit of a live debate, but it got it got pretty pretty heated in there. You were sorry, Chandler. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, <laughs> um, I, I, maybe we want to chain smoke. So um, <laughs> anyway, uh, this has been great. I really appreciate it. Um, I. Uh, um, think it's a really important study. You can find it. At, it's called Long Shadows. You can find it at the AI website. We'll put it in the show notes. You can also find it at Brookings uh, website. And um, maybe we'll get Richard on here 
um, some other time, uh, you know, uh, and, um, and thanks for doing this. Yeah, absolutely. Always a pleasure to be on the show and, uh, appreciate the great conversation. All right. So, uh, um, professor Winship has left the studio. Um, I hope people found it as interesting as I did. And, um, just a little, uh, housekeeping note. We recorded this last Thursday morning and, um, but this will not air until the beginning of next week or, or as the people listening to this would understand it today. Um, but that's in the future. And, um, I'm sort of like Loki trying to make, you know, playing, playing games with the various timelines. Um, but in the off chance that there are major developments in intergenerational African-American poverty between now and then, uh, um, you should just keep that in mind. Or if there are other things that you thought we should have talked about, but didn't, it's only because we didn't know about them. Um, you know, because they hadn't happened yet. It's, it's, this this weird thing about the space time continuum. Um, and also by the time you hear this, this will be old news, but, uh, tomorrow, Friday, um, is our own Nick Pompella's last day as, as my research assistant at AI and as the sort of, as one of the producers of the, the Remnant podcast. So we're going to do, um, or we did a drive time episode where we will also make it sort of, or I'm sorry, where we made it. This is difficult to do. Um, the uh, de facto exit interview for Mr. Pompella. Um, I can say that there was jocularity and good natured ripping that happened. Um, and now it's this weird, time traveler's paradox where I must make this a self-fulfilling prophecy. So anyway, with that all out of the way, thanks for listening. Um, more exciting stuff to come and uh, I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.